who we approached, how we approached them. In which I didn't win it, but I did learn that I was- I was a solo founder and I got the company to about a million dollars in revenue by myself. Holy crap, my company just did like nearly $10 million in sales this year. Um, one of the things that I was aware of that I find that a lot of startup founders aren't is- And welcome to the very first event called Women Make Great Leaders. Um, the purpose of this event is to, hi Alexis. Uh, the purposes of this event is not to be like a, a webinar style event. I just wanna share stories of other amazing women. I think I'm sure you know a lot of inspiring women and seeing is believing. Sometimes on LinkedIn, you see only gazillion amount of millions of dollars raised or big clients or big partnerships signed up. But the purpose of this event is to uncover the whole journey, what it takes to become a leader, what it takes to become an entrepreneur or role model. So in this event, I have two wonderful and amazing ladies joining who I personally look up to. And I think their stories will inspire all of you. And Please welcome Marie from, she is a co-founder, uh, she's a founder and CEO at Sampler, and Arion, she is a founder and CEO at Family. Both of them are solo founders, which is, I don't know how you guys, uh, how you ladies are doing it. And also both of them are moms. I think you guys, you become moms during building a startup. I, I don't know how, how, how you guys, balance everything together. So would love to would love to, to learn your stories. I think we're gonna kick off from the from the very beginning, from the childhood. I wanna learn how uh, uh, where you grew up, what was your dreams and what was your aspiration. So would let would let uh, Arion start. Arion, do you wanna unmute yourself and introduce sure. quickly and share where did you grow up? So I actually grew up in New York City. I was born in Brooklyn, New York and raised in Queens and Long Island, New York um, by a grandmother. I have six siblings and we were all adopted from birth by our maternal grandmother. Um, as a child, my dream was to be a doctor. I wanted to be a cardiologist and be as brilliant as Dr. Ben Carson until he opened his mouth. <laughs> but um, that was my goal to just become one of the biggest and most badass doctors out there. And that dream quickly changed as I navigated the, nu the nuances of college and more. But, um, you know, I, I can say I've always had really dreams. Awesome. Wow. Thank you. That's, that, that's great dreams. Uh, Marie, microphone to you. Tell us where did you grow up and what was your dreams that time? Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Marie. I was born in Montreal, Canada, um, or just outside of Montreal in a small town. Um, my first language is French, actually. I, I mostly learned English uh, by participating in theater. I was, um, I was, I wanted to be an actress growing up and I did a bunch of acting in British pantomimes, which is a type of theater, which is very uh, uh, funny. And, um, and so I had to act like I spoke English and uh, that's how I learned. So I, I went to French school and 
Um, and then, yeah, would would act in theater on the weekend at first without necessarily like a speaking role because I was very, very French and eventually got the speaking roles. And yeah, I, I wanted to be an actress. Um, that was that was my dream. Wow. Uh, great start. And then <laughs> you wanted to become an actress and that was your dream. And then when did the first, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur kind of thing came up to you, uh, Marie, what was the first tip, first I'm, idea? Yeah. So it's funny because as part of my acting, I, I also did a bit of musicals. So I, I did have a good singing voice. And one of the things that I, that one of the first signs that I was going to be an entrepreneur was that I really wanted to win um, Canadian Idol and there I was I wasn't getting into the audition so um, I actually started a uh, like high school idol at my high school um, and like started the contest so that I could participate in it and win it <laughs> which I didn't win it but I did learn that I was an amazing uh, organizer and that you know like I think that's my first time that I was like wow like I wanted something to happen so I made it happen myself so I think that was the first sign of my entrepreneurial um, journey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, I will. I will. Def I will not ask you to sing, but this is pretty cool. I, I never. I, I <laughs> oh, never I no longer have a, a singing voice. It, the one thing I will tell you about singing is like you have to upkeep your practice, or else it's completely gone. And uh, as my every every holiday, we do like karaoke uh, staff party in regular days. And uh, I will tell you, my team will tell you, I have a terrible singing voice now. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Arion, what about you? When when was that time when you were like, hey, I don't want to be a doctor, actually. I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to take this big risk. Man, um, I had gone through the process of taking both my MCAT and LSAT. And I realized that like, I did not want that life of going into a hospital or going into an office and spending nine to 10 hours there. And then like, what happens? Because I wanted to be a cardiologist that specialized in cardiac surgery. What happens when a patient dies? I am the worst when I like accidentally kill a butterfly. So I knew very quickly that it wasn't for me. And I just wanted to spend my days um, playing in makeup or doing whatever the hell I wanted. What happened was I ended up starting college early. I got skipped, started college at 15 at Stony Brook University, and then um, was admitted to Morgan State in HBCU here in Maryland. And I started a small little um, consumer goods business that catered and marketed only to women on different college campuses. And if you know anything about Baltimore, Maryland, it's a college town. You have Towson, University of Baltimore, University of Maryland, Morgan State, and so many others. And we started this network consumer goods business where you know, my team would come and get products from me and sell them on other campuses. And we grew in about three months to about $100,000 a month in revenue. So it was a shock to me. Um, it was also a major distraction. I ended up graduating like two, two and a half years late because my business was doing so well. Um, and it taught me that I not only had the audacity to go for it and do what was needed to succeed, that if I planned properly and built the team around me, 
that I could almost do anything. So more importantly, it gave me the confidence to like go out into the world and pursue whatever I wanted to thereafter. Um, and that was my first hurrah into entrepreneurship. Wow, can you can we stop with the the before hundred thousand dollars? How how did it all started? Like at the age of sixteen, you started this uh, CPG business, right? And how did you like how did you come up with the exactly like the product and the business plan? If you if you had business plan that time. Well, the product was easy because it was illegal then, but um, I realized quickly that there were gaps in the market when it came to women. Women were more comfortable purchasing certain things from women, especially if it was at night and after class. And I knew that um, I would be providing a niche service if I only catered to women like me who were uncomfortable, like going to a dark alley and, and getting their consumer good. <laughs> Got you. Oh, pretty good. But congrats. That's 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 a great start. And Marie, what about you? How did the idea of sampler came up? And maybe you could give us a quick take what is sampler, why people should yeah. sign up for sampler. <laughs> yeah, go to sampler.io and get free samples. It's that simple. Uh now so we so we at Sampler help uh, consumer package good brands. Um so any uh brand that is bought. Uh, like often is is really what fast moving consumer goods means. So uh, think about categories like fem care or um, food or snacks or uh, baby baby supplies. Um, those categories we help them distribute product samples um, and digital offers that will help them connect with net new consumers. Um, and ultimately stay in touch with them. So as a consumer, you go, you fill a quick profile, you tell us what you like, we match you with samples or high value coupons. You get to discover the products, give feedback to the brand. And if you love the brand, you'll get follow-up coupons so you can actually start purchasing the brand on an ongoing basis. Um, and so it's a basically a matchmaking like Tinder for samples, Tinder, Tinder for products and, and consumers. So. Um, yeah, so I mean, the way that the, the initial idea for Sampler actually happened in university, I was one of those brand ambassadors giving out free, I think, razors that day on a street corner. And, um, and I was, you know, thinking like, literally, I'm handing out razors on a street corner, like, what the heck, like, no one is going to just like, kind of like, get out and be like, let me use my razor. It's like super awkward, you put it in your purse you forget about it and you're so far from the shower. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so I was thinking to myself, like people are definitely not going to like talk about the razor with the friend that they're walking with. They're definitely not gonna remember that it's there. What a waste. And so that's when I realized, you know, there needed to be a digital approach to how we do product sampling. Um, but I, I had to go through like, five to seven years of real life work before actually feeling like I was ready to start. Um, so I worked for an agency, uh, learned a ton about digital marketing, learned a lot about consumer packaged goods. And then I actually went to, I moved to New York and I uh, worked for a VC firm. I worked for Rocket Internet and I got the opportunity to circulate across a few different business models, including um, kind of a copy of Birchbox called Glossy Box. 
And I also got to work on HelloFresh, which was really neat. So I learned a lot about subscription, learned a lot about like how consumers discover products and um, eventually founded a startup under that VC called Drop Gifts, which was in the gift card space. And then I was like, you know what? I have all everything I need, all the tools in my tool set to just go ahead and start. And so in 2013, eight years ago, I started Sampler. Back then, I'm telling you, there was no brand ready for that change. Uh, most brands were like, you know, oh, cool, cute idea. And then, you know, two years ago, the pandemic hits. You can, you can't, you can no longer sample on a street corner. Or you can no longer sample in a store. And more than that, you know, large move to e-commerce. Everybody needs to connect with consumers digitally. So the time is now, eight years later, <laughs> to really be building this business. Uh, but it's been an incredible journey. And um, and uh, yeah, I mean, happy to share more. But that's that's the sampler story <laughs> wow thank you so much and congrats congrats on the all the growth you're getting i, I follow you so I'm, I'm always like i see all the news so i'm very impressed with, uh, with how sampler is growing arion tell us about how now family it is it was uh, we we heard a great great start but tell us where you are right now and we'll dive into challenges sure. after Sure. So I started Femly after being diagnosed with a tumor that was related to chemicals found in many of the mainstream feminine care brands. Um, coincidentally enough, like Marie, we also started as a subscription box. So we were shipping organic cotton feminine care along with chocolate and body scrubs and everything you needed to kind of change the narrative around the week of your cycle. Um, we grew very quickly. And this was around the time that a then little known company called Dollar Shape Club was scaling towards a billion dollar acquisition. So while I was super happy for them, I realized that like guys can opt out of razors, women can't opt out of a period. So it made sense for us to kind of step into our own and step into our space and do the same, have a um, awesome team built and skilled towards an equally noteworthy acquisition. So we started the process of manufacturing our own products made with cotton grown here in the United States, which was a key differentiator. We revamped the products so that they outperformed many of our other competitors. And then similar to Marie, we leveraged a sampler approach to go to market with as little marketing costs as we could find. So essentially we started with selling our feminine hygiene products to hotels, colleges, stadiums, any venue where a woman might find herself without access to feminine care. And the cool thing was those organizations pay us, but women on site get the products that they need for free. So it's cool in that if you find our products everywhere and you love it, you use the discount code and shop on our site, which increases our um, subscription and subscriber journey, but also our lifetime value. And then we're also social impact driven. So we're supporting women who can afford our products, but also the women who can. Um, and for me, it was it was important to not only build a rock star revenue and distribution model, it was equally important to have a social impact that really helps to end period poverty, really helps to increase health education. In 2018, I found myself on life support after losing my daughter to stillbirth. And 
in the months after we found out that her loss was 100% preventable. So our goal with family is to bundle all of these things that women need, education, products, services, and more, and give it to them so that we're holding their hand throughout the various stages of their life cycle. Wow, such, a, such an inspiring story. Uh, very moved by both of you. I want to take a step back right now and thank you everyone who is joining. I see a lot of new, new faces coming up. If you have a question, if you want to jump in, just message on the public chat. Uh, I'm going to just ask you to, to unmute after that. But um, if, you, if you have specific questions, please don't be shy. Um, always open. So let's let's dive into, I'm sure now you, you, you both built impressive ventures. You have a huge team and I'm super happy. And I always look up to you, ladies. But let's dive into the challenges. Marie, what was the first biggest challenges? I'm sure when you said, this is what I'm going to do, like VCs were not just throwing money on you. And then the big brands were not saying, hey, yeah, I've been waiting for this solution all this time. Like how, when was this big first challenge you came and how did you overcome that, that uh, the challenge? Um, for me, the biggest initial challenge was starting a tech company without um, any technical um, knowledge. Um, I had to build a tech platform and I didn't have a, an engineering background. Um, so the, the reality is at the very beginning, I was selling through Photoshop mockups. So literally like I got one of my graphic designer uh, friends to create a platform like UX on, on Photoshop. And I would go to brands and I would be like, look, great platform that does this, 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 but literally did not exist. And so I knew my strength. My strength was being a sales CEO. And I said, like, let me just see if I could sell it. If I could sell it, then I'm sure I could figure out how to build it. But that was really hard. So um, I had I sold my first campaign. I got five thousand dollars from a brand to launch a program. And I was like, yay, five thousand dollars. I could definitely convince a developer to do this for five thousand uh, dollars. No, uh, but I did. I did know one guy um, in, and he lived in Germany. I had never met him before, but through my work at Rocket Internet, we had done some work on Skype back in the day, um, like in, he was on the development team. And so I knew he was a good developer from what I could tell. And I knew that he had just gotten laid off. And so I was like, hey, um, I'm building this startup. And I did like this full pitch for him. It was like the most important call of my life. And he was like, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. So he did it for stock and a little bit of money. Um, and he built the first version of Sampler, um, which allowed me to, um, you know, run with it. And we built, we worked with that platform for about two years until like I hired an in-house team with my, with my like first raise. Um, but yeah, like that was the biggest challenge and super scary because I, I truly had sold campaigns without even a line of code written. Wow. And uh, how long did it take you to convince that German developer? To, was it from the first call or it took you some two time? Skype calls? Two Skype calls. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, in the end, in the end, I think he just like he seriously, I think it was just like perfect timing because he was in between roles and he was probably like, wow, this like seriously, I, like if if you've ever 
well you you're chatting with me now like that the one thing that like I I I had then that I have not lost is passion and I I swear like I probably was like and then this and then this. <laughs> so, so I think he was probably like wow this girl is like <laughs> is has got to be onto something because she's so passionate so um yeah so he said he said at, at the time he's like I have no idea what you said, but it sounds like a massive market and like, I'd love to be part of it. And he's still to this day, like a, a huge fan of the vision. So yeah, two calls. Wow. Um, <laughs> he's probably very happy with the decision, but lesson learned, right? <laughs> if you don't have a technical background, that doesn't mean you cannot build a tech innovative venture. So I think this is the, this is the big learning that we all can take away. Like I don't have a technical background either. so um that's um kudos um uh Arian, to you what was the biggest first challenge when you're like uh oh this is this is the issue man so um for me it was also figuring out how to not only launch but like execute and scale the company when i did not come from this industry my background is like largely in marketing and i knew how to bring the people to it but i did not know how to build the thing um our very first issue that arose actually arose from another female founder um we launched and out of the gate we were in forbes we were plugged by ariana huffington we got so much press in the first six months of launch and there were other like little known competitors in the space that weren't organic that like used that as their opportunity to kind of throw stones at us so we found ourselves in one um, particular position where we had purchased our url domain but i didn't have the foresight to purchase all of the related domains. So like family.co, family.whatever. Um, and a competitor had purchased something similar so that if someone used a typo, they would end up on this site. And what was happening for about three months, people were emailing in saying, hey, I ordered from you and it's not organic. I would like a refund. But when we would go in our system, it wasn't our product. We don't have any knowledge of their order. And we found out that they were basically using our landing page to funnel customers to themselves. Um, and one thing I didn't realize is that IP alone is not enough. When you decide to go out for these trademarks and patents and whatever it is, you also have to have the funding to actually defend it and pay a lawyer. So I had spoken to a general counsel who said, you know, we can pursue this. This is a very clear case of cyber squatting, but I didn't have the money to do so. So thankfully with my network, um, I had some friends high up over at Black Lives Matter with thousands and thousands of followers on Twitter. And I simply typed in my URL domain, shared a video of what was happening, and they shared it on Twitter. And because of the public backlash and outcry, within 48 hours, I got my domain back and nobody else ever attempted to do anything similar again. Um, and then the other big thing that happened was um, just not having access as a as a woman and as a female minority founder to network so I leveraged the hell out of LinkedIn many of you guys are here today because of our post on LinkedIn and more and I went and I found one of the first four employees at Dollar Shave Club I went and I found someone over at Glossy Box I went and I found an attorney who helped do you know the LinkedIn Microsoft merger and I made sure that because I didn't know crap that I surrounded myself with the people that did who were smarter than me and from that 
We now have our own proprietary line of products. We have a first of its kind in the world proprietary hardware product launching in Q2. And I have a bachelor's in consumer economics from an HBCU. So it's wild to me to like, just look back because as you navigate this stuff day by day, nothing changes. But when you look back, every single thing is different. Um, and yeah, with the right resources, team and grit, you can do anything. Do not let not being a technical founder hold you back. Wow, this is uh, holy guacamole. Somebody stealing your domain and then funneling client. I don't know. I would, I would, be, I would be scared. But uh, Twitter is powerful. I have like fifty followers on Twitter, and I get like two or three likes. So my tweet, like, I have to do a lot of work on Twitter. But congrats! I think your network is definitely a network. Like, I don't know how much that lawyer would have charged you if, if you didn't have that powerful network to, to actually share and say, hey, this is what's been happening. So um, congrats and kudos for overcoming all these challenges and not giving up. So Marie, over to you. So you, you, you convinced that developer from Germany to work for $5,000 and some stock options. You got this campaign, $5,000 from the client, but now you have to keep pushing you have to get another client. And how, how, did, how did it work? Was it, did you just leverage other story to a bigger client or you had to do some more cold calling? <laughs> Let me put it this way. Yeah. I mean, the, the, a lot of different uh, aspects of the business had to grow. But um, so what I, what I think the one of the biggest kind of game changers for me um, from that step was when I joined um, Google Next, which was a, an accelerator um, made for, for by Google for entrepreneurs. Um, and basically the accelerator um, got me to come into a room every week in front of some of the smartest people in Toronto and pitch. Literally all you did is pitch and, and get feedback. And I would get literally crushed every week because I would come in and I would be like hey so this week I did this and like I talked to this client and it was all about like client discovery and all of that and every week someone would just like lean into me and say like well did you think about this or did you think about that and it was in the end it was like a six to eight week uh, process and at the end of the process there was a big pitch competition um, which I absolutely slayed, like best presentation ever, but I would never have been able to do that um, if it wasn't for like constant feedback every single week. And, um, and that's when I realized, you know, um, that what I needed to do at every step along the way is just take myself through the boot camp. Right. And it, and it, I mean, I'm in the startup boot camp for every single step of my career our every step of our company's growth at the end of the day like my company's growth is limited by how i scale myself and how my team scales themselves and that was a really really good lesson that like over the course of eight weeks i was able to start from like one thing to another and i totally relate to what you're saying Aaron, um, on like the fact that like it's small mini increments of change uh, that you don't realize are happening and then you look back and you're like holy crap, my company just did like nearly $10 million in sales this year. Like, how does that happen? Right? Like it's, it's, it's really, really cool. 
Um, but it, 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 it needs to start with you scaling yourself. So every like quarter I said, I say to myself, like, what do I need to learn? Like, what do I need to get better at? Right. And, um, so I don't know if that answers, it's pretty broad, <laughs> but uh, oh, the first step was just like you. thinking about, you know, how am I going to talk about this? How am I going to get people excited about it? Um, and so that's like at that pitch competition, I found early employees and I found early investors and, and that was kind of the next step of my journey. Always be accelerating. I think that's something that we could always Ariel and, and, and me, we're going through Techstars right now. It's an accelerator. So we are actually going through the process where we get a lot of like feedback on our, on our end and really um, taking the company to the next level. So whoever, like, if, you, if you're thinking right now about whether you should be applying to accelerator or incubator or not, please definitely do. There's so many. Take advantage of the resources a lot of them are actually free a lot of them um offer some investments so i encourage everyone to take a look and and leverage their expertise um marie question back to you so this is uh, so i went through google accelerator myself right so and right now with the tech stars so how do you deal with constant feedback i'm sure some of the feedback was harsh some of them were like Maria, I don't, I don't really think you should be doing this now. Have you thought about doing completely opposite thing? Like, how do you deal? Like, you'll probably get, I don't know, 20 people saying you, but at least 30, 40% will give you really rough feedback. And how do you leverage it in something that will contribute to your growth? So yeah, tell me about it's really tough. Part. And, and, um, you know, early on the, the feedback the feedback hurts because often you're one out of two, three people on the team and it, and it, your idea is like, like it's, it's yours. Like it's so core to who you are. Like it is like, it hurts in that like very personal way. Um, and I find like over the years, the feedback, like you kind of start getting a little bit less personal about like the, the business feedback but the feedback that hurts the most now is the team's feedback. So now like I'm getting hit like both ways. I'm like getting like, I'm like, I'm very confident on the business we've built and like the, the position in the market and all that stuff, but still get feedback about that and like how we run the business. But then like the, the feedback from a from a teammate saying like, I'm not getting like the right growth opportunity or I, I didn't like that decision or stuff like that. So Feedback does it like it just it changes a little bit as you grow, but it it only gets harder, I think. So, um, so I think the best advice I could I could do, um, um, I could give is trying to remember that you are not your company. Like I tell myself a lot, like Marie is not Stampler. Stampler is not Marie <laughs> and like trying to really remember uh, that because it's really difficult sometimes like we live it at day in day out and at the end of the day like you just have to remember like who you are and I know I'm a good person I know I try I try like day in day out to to be a good person and, and just like regrounding yourself in that um, and uh, and you know knowing that at any point you, like making a decision is better than not it, like we've all learned that right like you can't sit as a as a leader you cannot sit with i don't know 
I don't know, it doesn't get you paid. I don't know, it doesn't get you forward. So you have to make decisions. And at the moment you're making the decision with all of the information you have available, which most of the time is not a lot. And so you just kind of got to go with your gut. You got to go with the information you have available and making a decision is more important than not. So um, you got to forgive yourself because you're going to make a lot of bad decisions too, right? So um, so yeah, so I, I just try and say like, I am not my company. I am, I am Marie and I did the best I could in that moment, right? Yeah, it, it's very challenging. Right now, I think I'm still learning how to separate myself from paper stuff. It's, it's a process, definitely. But thank you for sharing that, Marie. Um, it's a reminder for all of us, I think, to, to, to separate. There is a question from Zach. Zach, I want you to come up, introduce yourself, share what you're working on, and ask the question. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Zach Shen. I am the co-founder and CEO of Charmy Pet. And thank you, Maria, for sharing that incredible uh, journey. It's definitely uh, uh, hit me along the way because currently I'm 23 years old. I I started Charmy Pet during my university years, and so Charmy Pet is um, it's a customized a uh, pet food brand that tailored to the pet's needs based on their nurturing environment, dietitian needs. And today's, um, I also have some questions because we are currently at the newest DMZ incubators programs. Nice. So we, we get a lot of feedback daily or bi-weekly and some of the feedback could be overwhelmed. Um, and after going through, um, it, at this stage, we are almost seven months in the incubator programs. At first six months, we were a bit overwhelmed by all the feedback. But as today, I think I can navigate through a lot of feedback. But I'm just curious on Maria's side, like um, um, you get um, tons of feedback uh, on a weekly basis. Like what would feedback you would take and which feedback you would go actually execute it? Like, do you have like weight the feedback? How do you weight those feedback? Yeah, good question. Um, so the at this point, um, I I choose who I get feedback from, which I think is a really um, important kind of power dynamic that you can um, that you can start taking control of. But I would say at your stage, uh, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I'll, I I went through. The, I went through the MZ and drinking out of the feedback fire hose because that's what you're doing during an accelerator is very powerful because it what it allows you to do is to try and find commonalities or try and find um, you know things you might have heard a couple times try and add your perspective to what somebody else is saying um, and also distilling that into priorities, right? Because if you're getting like 15 pieces of feedback, even if you wanted to listen to all of these great people, you can't do 15 things in a week. It's impossible. You can't do 15 things in a year. You're, you won't even have enough focus, right? So I think it's showing you it's, it's going to be great and it's going gonna, it's gonna to teach you how to listen. It's going to teach you how to synthesize. Uh, but today, what I will say is that... Um, because I need to, because I need to be very precise in what I, we do, because we can't do everything, because we, 
um, we have to prioritize. I, I choose who I get feedback from. So I choose my board, right? That's a really good, important, um, important group. So um, I choose my board to be, uh, I, 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 chose, I chose a board that has stayed with me for a long time, which, you know, that's also a choice is like, do I want someone, do I want people who have fresh perspectives? Do I want people that have long history um, about the company? I also, because I have a board that's been with us for a while, I have a um, board of advisors. Um, and that's where you can kind of reach far. You could say like, you know, I want the head of media Walmart, or I want the, you know, the, the, the head of um, the CFO of a massive agency to help me on like um, financial strategy. Um, you know, so, and what I do is that I set up um, I set up specific times um, every two weeks or every month, depending on the advisor, to get inspired. And they and I use them not just for feedback, like specific feedback sometimes, like, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think about this? But I, I will say things like I remember like with uh, one of our advisors, I said, like, tell me tell me about your day to day um, just so I could understand, like, because he's, he's like, he'd be my typical client, right? Tell me about your day-to-day. -day. What are your stressors this quarter? Like trying to just kind of understand their perspective. Um, and then the other group that I get a lot of feedback from is my leadership team. So I, who you, like, you know, that saying, I don't know exactly the same, but like, you are the result of your environment. Like, this is very true in business. Like the people that I talk most to are my leadership team, my board, and my advisors. And so you know, they're three quarters of my week, probably, right? So, um, so if you choose those folks, right, and, um, and again, like, you don't want it to be a bias group, like you want it to be diverse, diverse experiences, people that have, um, that are stronger than you in different things, um, you can kind of create, you can, you kind of manufacture the way you want to receive feedback, right? Well, thank you so much, Marie. Um, Arion, I know you also went through a lot of ton of feedback that people gave you. Like, what would be your advice to Zach, especially uh, like at his stage? He's now uh, seven months in the incubator. Um, how would you handle the feedback if, if you were uh, Zach? So my husband has this thing that I love. Chew the meat, spit out the bones. Um, I found that earlier on, I was more susceptible to feeling flustered or feeling like I had to be pulled in a thousand different directions because the advice that you get can be so diverse. And like one person will say, you shouldn't do this, but the next person would say that you should. So for me, it was always this um, ongoing um, cycle of going to our KPIs, going to our goals and working backwards. And then the other thing was, we, before it was even mandated, before we even had gotten our first venture investor, we had won like 47 pitch competitions in a row and raised 900,000 non-dilutive. And what I did with that was I started doing a monthly network update email, which is similar to an investor email. So in that email, we would put like three or four bullets of our wins, three or four bullets of our needs, three or four bullets of our ask. And then anybody who could help and assist with those things was able to respond and make introductions or leverage their expertise accordingly. We also had a ongoing um, monthly 
update call for like an hour. So that was like every Thursday for one hour at the same time, every single month. And what we found is that not only did network partners who had like held the pitch competitions or who had followed our journey join these calls, it also became an almost informal sounding board for some of the advice that we needed from people that we could actually trust. And, you know, you'd find that like this person might only have 15 minutes. So they'll drop in specifically for something from your email and then other people would stay for the entire time. So that helped. Um, the other thing was paying attention and recognizing the fact that I was the prize. Often when you're a startup, you're so eager to grow and scale and get the funding and resources that you need that you even approach your interactions with investors as if they're the prize. And in reality, they're not. Raising money is not um, the accomplishment. Growing a successful business because of said raised money is the accomplishment. So when talking to people, I realized that one, I'm the one with the vagina. Most of the time I'm going to be talking to people who don't have one. And two, I'm the best person for what I'm trying to build. Did I go and find advisors in the subscription space? Yes. Did I go and find advisors who had you know, a working knowledge of like regulatory compliance when it came to crafting new feminine products. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I was the one with the vision. So if their feedback didn't fit where I thought I was going, that bone was spit out. <laughs> so that's basically that I can say. And the other thing is too, once you get to a point where other people are actually giving you their money to grow, their opinion becomes a little bit more important than let's say Bob on the street. So yeah. Thank you so much, Ariane. Uh, Zach, I hope you, you got now full perspective and I hope you, you'll, you'll find it valuable and implement some of the feedback. On, from my side, I can tell that monthly update made a huge difference in our, uh, in our journey. Like we'll get either investors coming in after maybe third or fourth update they will receive um, every month after every update, I'll have people introducing me to somebody that I was looking for. So it's if somebody is like even thinking or doubting whether it should or should not do a monthly update, definitely do it. Now with Techstars, we're doing something called like weekly updates. So it's a bit challenging, but it definitely helps. So I encourage everyone to, to take a look. So let's talk about the challenges when it comes to team and people. Both Marie and Arion mentioned about choosing specific people was like uh, approaching people from like industry or skills, like developers, industry or CFOs. How do you win those people, especially really smart, really accomplished? Uh, Maria, let's start with you. Like, I'm sure when you like, if, if you have, let's say somebody who has been in CPG, um, like 20 years of experience, I'm sure that person gets approached like 20 times per day. Like, how do you convince that specific person to come to Sampler or not to another company uh, in in early days, if, if, if you don't mind? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even today, right, we're, we're in a huge talent war right now. Um, and uh, so every day you have to remind your teams why they should be working with you on your project versus, you know, another um, and, um, and so at the end of the day, I think it, it's just about remembering that the largest investment someone can make in your company is their time. Um, and kind of going back to 
uh, going back to some of the things we were talking about around investors, like cash is great, but um, someone's talent on your project is, is you know, a huge investment. Um, and so it's, it's as, as a leader, as a founder, as a CEO, like your job is to just sell the vision constantly. Like, and that's tiring. Like, it's very tiring. Like, but I will tell you that, you know, there's days that when I'm, when I'm down, like my team, my team will feel it. Like if my, if my team knows like, oh, Marie's energy is down, they freak out. Like they're like, what's going on? And I'm just like, I'm just tired. I'm a new mom has nothing to do with the business. I'm telling you, but, but like your energy is everything. And I, and, um, that's why you got to take care of yourself. You really got to take care of yourself. So, um, I, I, for example, our head of uh, sales and client success, this amazing guy named Garrett, he, um, he, he came from Nielsen, which is a pretty big company in our space. They're in insights for CPGs. And, uh, you know, I, I had to sell him on the vision. I, I met with him maybe 12 times um, over the peri period of like nine months. And I was, and frankly, I didn't even know what he would do at our company. I didn't even know the role. I just knew I wanted him. And I, uh, and so we sat together and figured out what would be the ideal role for him. And he came into or the organization, worked with me for three months. We got to know each other. And the role I had put him in was, was the head of operations, was totally the wrong role for him. And we, we, switched, uh, we switched him to head up sales and commercialization. And he's growing through the company like mad. I just knew, I just knew that like I wanted him. So yeah, it could take time. It could take time. And um, it, it's, it's all about like making sure that, that their, their vision for how their career will go is well aligned with how like you're thinking of building the business and continuing to sell the dream and um, sell is, is the wrong word, but um, you know, inspire uh, for sure. So I think what also helps is that, especially in early stage right now, um, winning a lot of generalist people. So you can one day or three months, you could be the person, uh, Gary, you were mentioning, could be head of operations, but then that person will be total, totally cool to moving to a different role. It's a certain mindset that takes to for the person to jump from a role to a role. Um, but sure. uh, Arion, over to you, how did you, uh, you mentioned something about Dollar Shave Club, how you've been approaching them through LinkedIn and then taking them and convincing them to come to, to your company. Like how, how did you do that? So in the beginning, we were super scrappy. I mean, nobody can afford to pay someone a full-time salary in the beginning. And for me, it brought on a, an entire separate set of anxiety because we had started hiring around the time that like I was just getting off a of life support and going through this horrible stillbirth and like coming back from organ failure. And then just when things were kind of okay, a year later, boom, I'm pregnant with our son, which I had during the pandemic. So for me, it was being savvy and then also being creative and who we approached, how we approached them and how we used their contributions to leverage it so that we could eventually, you know, commit to more time and actually consider what bringing them on full time would look like. Um, one of the things that I was aware of that I find that a lot of startup founders aren't is the need for both a vesting schedule 
and um, diversifying that equity gives. So if you're bringing somebody onto your startup super duper early, you'll want to give them a vesting schedule so that whatever equity you're saying that you're going to give them, they get it over a period of time. I think the average is about four years. And let's say you're giving them 4%. That would look like giving them 1% for year if they stay with the company as an at-will employee for up to four years. And this is important because I've heard so many horror stories of people thinking that they found a great fit and maybe it wasn't, maybe they didn't fit the culture. Maybe they didn't know what you thought they did. And when they leave that company, they take the equity with them. So for me, we started our team members as contractors. We knew that we needed to find awesome sales assassins, business dev assassins, um, operations assassins. Because of what we're doing, I knew that I didn't need somebody with a PhD in neuroscience, but I wanted somebody that had the gall and the personality that they were hungry for this and that they were really looking for an opportunity that would provide growth and eventually also equity in a growing startup that could exit our IPO for at least $2 billion. So that was one, having a vesting schedule, being intentional about the equity give, and then also two, leveraging our local community network. Um, because of where we are geographically, we were able to leverage, instead of hiring a separate attorney for our IP, we used the George Washington Law School Law Clinic, which provides their senior law school students for free to help you with your IP. We leveraged that. In the other bucket, we leveraged Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business here in Baltimore. And we ended up with four employees that we did not have to pay that the school paid the salaries for. So it was a mix of just being savvy, but then also talking to people, going to events and finding out what was available in our area. Because our first true year of hiring people was last year. We now have a team of eight people, but for three, no, I launched in 2015. So from 2015 to 2020, I was a solo founder and I got the company to about a million dollars in revenue by myself. And after that, we only started thinking about scale and um, you know how Marie said that you have to think about scaling yourself and the team has to scale themselves. So be super savvy, be creative in how you mix things up and don't be scared to ask for help in your local networks. Well, I haven't actually thought about uh, like, especially legal help is so, so expensive. And legal help gets expensive if they know you get funding. So that's, uh, I've, I, I heard a lot of stories how uh, uh, founders get this huge bills and everything. And I also heard a lot of horror stories with like somebody gets like 10 and 20% of the company and leaves the company uh, because that person didn't have a vesting schedule. So thank you for reminding about this really important steps. So let's go back to, um, so you, you got your first traction, you have your clients, you, you attracted first talents, and then obviously then later you're thinking about uh, raising capital, right? Both of you, both of you raise capital, and I'm sure you, you face a lot of challenges in that sense. Uh, tell me, tell me how you approach from like mindset perspective, like were, were you ready for rejections or were you surprised when things started happening? Uh, Maria, I know in your case, it probably was uh, something you were already prepared because you worked in the VC space, right? But I think when you're still raising yourself and your founder, it, it feels a little bit different. So how, how did you approach that uh, funding? So I, I worked at, I, I worked at an, 
a VC that that basically their model is that they go and raise the capital and they they get founders into the companies. And so I actually had a, like a multi-million dollar um, uh, bank account the day I started uh, on my first startup. So very different. I never had to raise money before Sampler. Um, and, uh, and frankly, the, the, my approach going into it was, was let me handle this like sales. Um, like ultimately you're, you're trying to sell a vision. You're trying to get people to, um, to buy into your vision. Right. So, um, I just took kind of my sales approach into it, like tons of follow-up, um, consistency, um, you know, um, continuing to like you tell them you're going to deliver on something give them an update on it um so that's kind of how I went about it um I my my the first few investors that invested in sampler were a big reason why we were able to raise the second and the third and the fourth round um so you know keeping those initial investors really close. Um, early on, I leveraged a lot of angel investors, actually. Um, Sampler's cap table was like 40-ish and uh, angel investors. So, you know, it's different approach, but um, though they were writing small checks, but many of them were actually pretty big uh, influencers in our community. So they were able to make the intros that I needed. And so, um, it's a lot to handle, but if, um, but you know, if, if you, if you have the right kind of reporting, um, schedule, then, you know, you can, you can, you can make it happen. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you have specific questions, but I, I really took it like a sales process and, and that was my approach. Got you. No, that's uh, that's that's an interesting mindset, and and keeping that it's it's just uh, sometimes you have to have many calls, many follows up before they say yes. That also helped me keep that mindset and energy flowing. Um, Arion, over to you. Your situation was a little bit different. You decided to go after non-dilutive capital, right? First, um, you raised almost a million dollar in the non-dilutive capital. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about it. Like how, how did you approach it? What was the behind the motivation or the logic? Um, how did you start with that? So I knew that here in the US, 98% of the funding went to men and 2% went to women. But in that 2%, at the time, it was like 0.0006% went to Black women like myself. So I knew that raising venture could be an uphill battle, but I also didn't think that it made sense to just throw a bunch of my company at somebody who hadn't been with me for the journey. So I leveraged grant opportunities. We've leveraged pitch, competi um, pitch competitions and opportunities. And we raised enough funding to launch the product, get some good revenue, get some traction, build out a small team. And when we got to the point of actually making the decision to raise a venture round, we also wanted to be creative in how we did that because I didn't want to be on the hamster wheel of raising money and giving equity and then end up with like 
10, 20% of my company. So we decided to raise for a very specific milestone that would put us, you know, to about 10 million in revenue. And then at that point, we knew that um, we're projecting that revenue will be self-sufficient to get us from 10 million to 100 million. So for me, it was just not only being intentional about the kind of money that we raised, but also being intentional about who was on the cap table. Just like we've heard horror stories of people hiring bad teams, getting an investor is like a marriage and you don't want to be married to the wrong person and not not be able to get the divorce. So for me, it was um, it was a mix of also getting references from other founders. I can't begin to tell you how many investors I said no to, not because I had a bad experience with them, but because I had the foresight to reach out to every founder in their portfolio and see what they thought of them. And the founders would come back and say, girl, you need to run, or here's a situation that happened and now we can't get rid of them. Um, and it actually saved me so that we could really focus on the people who were good, people who were great and were supportive of us and people who we actually felt comfortable also sharing our fears with, you know, because sometimes when you have these conversations with investors, you're not you're not necessarily in a position to be open about what's bothering you and what's keeping you up at night because you have their money, but we didn't have that. In fact, um, with one of our angel investors, we have about five or so, so far. Um, we have a running meeting every Tuesday and it's just literally, what are you working on? How can I help? Who do you need an intro to? And currently she's almost our chief marketing officer. Um, so, you know, it's just, be creative. There is a lot of non-dilutive capital out there, especially for different tech segments, for underrepresented founders, women, minorities, whomever. People are actively trying to make a change and do better than they've done before. So you don't necessarily have to look at venture capital as the only path to success. There's also debt. There's also, um, you know, gap funding. There's also loans. Like there are all these other things that you could take advantage of. And then the cool thing about that is what I didn't realize is when you have traction without being diluted, the ball is even more so in your court than it would have been if you came to them at pre-seed or seed. I was able to then raise a venture round on the exact terms that I wanted while giving away a tiny percent that I was comfortable with. And we were able to do that because we had traction and had used the non-dilutive funding to get to a certain point. Wow, impressive. I hope uh, people, uh, I hope you guys are getting different ideas and flows and please take advantage of to other ways of funding your idea, whether it's pitch competitions, non-dilutive funds and grants and others. So I encourage everyone to take a look. I know we're almost at the time, so I wanna be respectful of everyone's time. Marie and Arion, thank you so much for sharing your journey and stories. Really, really appreciate. Thank you everyone who attending and listening and participating, really appreciate it. Please follow Marie, Arion, on the Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, would love to, would love to keep in touch with everyone and have a wonderful and amazing week and holidays. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. Bye guys. Thank you.